0: Let's turn back in the Word of God to First Corinthians, in the chapter 13 that we have already read in our Bible reading today. First Corinthians 13, and we'll read verse 1 through 3 again. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a t- tinkling cymbal We are taking the first part in what will be a short series. Obviously, it won't happen next Lord's Day with our harvest, but a short series here on this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, learning to love the topic, and looking at verse 1 through verse 3 today. Let's together bow in prayer, please. Our gracious and our eternal Father in heaven, again, we thank Thee that we are found before Thy throne, that we have an open book. We have a book that speaks to our hearts. We have one that grips us whenever we come with an open mind and with that prayer, Lord, speak to me today. Father, we pray that Thou wilt speak to everyone that is gathered here, that there will be a message that we will be able to focus upon, that we will be able to gather up into our minds, allow it to radiate through our hearts, and then to work its way out in our activity on a daily basis. We know that we have to assimilate the Word, and that we know that we have to be in obedience to that truth and practice it, and then we will have good success— and we'll not be turning to the right hand or to the left hand in confusion or imagining there's something better out there. Something more fulfilling outside of thy holy book. And so we come today and we pray that we will be submissive unto thy speaking voice. And we will know thy power in Be with those who are ill today. May they know thy comfort, thy touch, thy presence with them. And we do pray for those whose hearts are heavy due to recent bereavement. And we think of the Ferguson family in particular, and all the connections there, that I will be merciful to them. And may the words of Holy Scripture be their comfort and their stay. We pray in our Saviour's blessed and altogether holy name. Amen. Now, class, without opening our Bibles today, let's recite together the passage of Scripture that we have been committing to memory over the course of the last number of weeks. The 13th chapter of the Epistle to the Corinthians, from verse 1 right through to the end, verse 13. Those words could have been very commonplace in school classrooms across this country in the earlier part of the last century. I know, because I've heard it many times, that my mother often would mention the fact that when she was a girl at a local school, this Bible passage, 1 Corinthians 13, was one that she was obligated to commit to memory. Scripture memorization. It was viewed back then as an essential part of the church curriculum, and those were good and grand old days for sure. High times sadly have changed. Today, we have campaigns being launched, not only this side, but the other side of the Atlanticus well, where they're trying to ban everything from even reading the Lord's Prayer and reciting that in schools to anything else that even remotely resembles an expression of our Christian faith. Writing for the Telegraph, Back on the 24th of March of 2009, Graham Patton subtitled his article then, School Children Will Be Taught About the Rise of Atheism in a New Religious Studies GCSE. It has been announced. Then he continued, Lessons Will Also Focus on Druids, and Rastafarianism as part of the syllabus designed to boost understanding of religious diversity across the world. Attitudes by different faiths towards same-sex marriages, human rights, gender equality, and even GM crops will be among the topics covered. The course will be largely snubbing traditional lessons on the Bible and other holy books. Now, I'm not sure at all why way back in the day, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was selected for memorization at school. Maybe they were looking a little down the line at the pupils and thinking, well, this is going to be essential preparation for those wedding bells that will chime in the lives of those pupils In some future day. Now, it's undoubted that most pupils back then were married at a much earlier age than what they are today. According to figures released by the Office of National Statistics in 2007 in the UK, the average age for a groom was 37 years of age, and his bride, back then, almost 34 years of age. The numbers are going higher, as you could well imagine. 2018, groom came up to 38.1, and bride, 35.8. Not sure how you work out uh, those little decimals there into actual months and days, but there we have it. Those were the averages, up to 38 and up to, well, almost 36. 36. What we have in 1 Corinthians 13 is undoubtedly an appropriate passage that could be read at a wedding. And I'm sure you've been to many where people have taken this as their Bible reading on those occasions. What we have in the chapter here is the finest description of love that exists. And if every couple going into marriage… Made this description of love that defined in the chapter here, made it a template for the kind of love that they're going to work on, marriages would be more stable and they'd be filled with a greater sense of fulfillment and happiness. Having said that, it's important to realize that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not specifically directed towards marriage although the application will always remain appropriate. And it's only really when this passage is divorced from its context here that it becomes simply and only an ode to love. Many today have totally diluted the impact of the passage by making it Nothing more than a kind of sentimental sermon on common brotherhood, the linkage that brings us all together. But if I've said, and I have, that it's not a passage specifically about marriage, then what is it? Its principal purpose is to address relationships within each other in the body of Jesus Christ. On the lead up, and it's always important to get the background and the, the context and the setting of any passage in the Bible, on the lead up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's Paul doing? He's been talking about the spiritual gifts the people of God possess, the rule that we play in the work of God. Many people feel to see that Paul was still dealing with those problems faced by the Christians in the church of Corinth when he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 13. And he's grappling with issues, the abuse of the gift of tongues, division in the church, envy of other people's gifts, selfishness rising to the form, impatience with one another in the public meetings, and behavior that generally was disgracing the Lord. And chapter 13 forms part of this large discussion. Look for the immediate hook and connector. The final verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the verse 31, therefore, Paul tells us he's going to show us a more excellent way, steering the people in the church away from division and envy and selfishness and impatience, and other abusive and destructive behaviors. And so in this context, First Corinthians 13 appears, and it opens up this more excellent way by showing us that what is most important as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ together, it's not the label of the gift or the talent that He has given to us, but what matters most is that in all of our exercises and activities in the work of God, we do so in a spirit of genuine love. And of course, I should flag this up right away. The charity, the love, of 1 Corinthians 13 finds its fullest expression in the person and in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's in this light? that we're going to examine the passage, take a few weeks to do so, God willing, we're looking today, first of all, at the primacy of love, and we find it in verse 1 through to 3. We'll go on to the profile of love, as that's described in verse 4 through to the verse 7, and then verse 8 to 13, the final section, that's taking us to the permanence of love. But today, the primacy of love. Why we must learn to love. Though I speak, verse 1, with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could move mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So what do we have here but love defined? It's not about what we have in society today. Maybe big capital letters, L-U-V, that ambiguous term used to describe everything from the favorite flavor that you have in ice cream to the current music heartthrob performing out there to thousands of people. And in our Western culture, what we have done is we have diluted this word love until it's practically meaningless. You'll drive through Belfast right now, and you'll see little three-word slogans. Love is love. Show some love. You know what they're aiming at. We have allowed unrestrained teenage passion to dictate much of our understanding of love in our society today. We have allowed the promotion of vile behaviors to travel under the term and description of love. And Romans 1 certainly does not describe it as that. We use love as well rather flippantly to describe what is a blossoming relationship. We're bypassing terms like like and enjoy and appreciate and delight and be comfortable with and all of that. And what it seems is those terms are just too tame. They don't really describe a relationship when the. Pressure of society is accelerate that relationship right to passion as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, using this term love with greater frequency in a much wider scope, it dilutes its intended significance. In the Greek language, they tried to give us a little bit of help here. They actually ruled out four words. Describing love. They have a term that's very familiar to many, eros. The most familiar, sadly, to our society. It's the root form of our word, erotic. It's passion, it's desire, and through the centuries, eros has caused more corruption of conscience than any other emotion. Eros is egotistical. Self-gratifying, only out for yourself and nobody else. And it is not the term that is used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or anywhere else in our New Testament. And it is not the emotion that God is looking from us. There's another term that they used in Greek, and that was philia. Phileo, genuine attraction, friendship, but there's also in the term a selfish attraction to pleasure bound up here. More than that, we have a third word, storge. It only appears together as a compound along with phileo, and it describes love of family. But when I come to 1 Corinthians 13, I'm on a new level. I've come to the fourth Greek word, agape. Different level of thought, different level of feeling jacking the whole system up that it brings us to a level that is beyond any earthly description. This word used for love, 1 Corinthians 13, it is agaping, and it seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. It is self-sacrificing. It is wholly benevolent. It is deeply caring love. It's not often used in the Greek writings at all, before we come to the New Testament letters. In fact, if you're going to surf the literature to find its appearances, well, you'll find it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament about 20 times, but it doesn't seem to be used outside of true Christianity. This quality wasn't revealing itself in Greek culture, didn't travel even through the Jewish culture outside readings of the Torah. Daily life didn't reflect this aspect of love in any real fashion, but we have have it here today in 1 Corinthians 13, and we have it demonstrated for us in Romans 5 and verse 8. What does that say? But God commendeth His love, agape, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As James I. Packer put it, Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 22. It is, he says, a matter of will rather than feeling. For Christians must love even those they dislike, Matthew five, forty four to forty eight, and he notes in closing it's the basic element in Christ likeness. Now as we watch man's march right through history, we can pick up times and instances when his love was a reflection of God's love in Christ agape. And when you're looking at that and see an example of that, you're saying, there is sacrificial love on view. There is true compassion in display. There is God's heart of love flowing through an individual. William Gladstone, British Prime Minister, in announcing the death of Princess Alice in the House of Commons, he told a touching story. The reason behind her death, the little daughter of the princess was seriously ill with diphtheria. The doctors told the princess not to kiss her little daughter, and so therefore don't endanger your own life by breathing the child's breath. And once when the child struggling to breathe, the mother forgetting herself entirely, she took the little one into her arms and to try and keep her from choking to death and rasping and struggling for her life. The child said, Mommy, kiss me. And leaving aside thoughts of herself, Princess Alice kissed her little daughter. She contracted diphtheria. Some days later went to be forever with the Lord. Real love forgets self. Real love knows no danger. Real love does not pause and get the calculator out and begin to calculate what will happen if we do this. It does not stop to count the cost. On the 2nd of May 1962, a dramatic advertisement appeared in the San Francisco Examiner. It read like this. I don't want my husband to die in the gas chamber for a crime he did not commit. I will therefore offer my services for ten years as a cook, maid, or housekeeper to any leading attorney who will defend him and bring about his vindication. One of San Francisco's best lawyers of that time, Vincent Hollonan. He either read about or he heard about the ad, and he contacted, in a way, Gladys Kidd, who had placed that advertisement, and her husband, Robert Lee Kidd, was about to be tried for the slaying of an elderly antiques dealer. Kidd's fingerprints had been found on a blood-stained ornate sword that was in the victim's shop. During the trial, Holonan proved that the antique dealer had not been killed by the sword at all. And the kid's fingerprints and blood on the sword got there because once he'd been in the shop and he'd toyed around with the sword and he was playfully duelling with a friend that day when they were both out just shopping and into the store they went. And the jury after 11 hours found kid to be not guilty. The attorney refused Gladys Kidd's offer of ten years service to him. Classic illustrations of sacrificial love. These certainly are, but I remind you and me today that God's call to us cannot be described adequately through the common terms of man. When God tells us to live He's describing how He has lived, what He has done, the sacrifice He has made, what the eternal Son has demonstrated on the cross. And if you and I are going to be effective in going out and in witnessing for Christ and in bringing in the lost, then we go, in our charter, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, for the love of Christ. Const- Reigneth us. Any other love is too limp and too self centered and too fake. Lord, send me out in this society with the love of Christ that I can reach others. So we have love here and It is defined, it's also diffused. Notice how Paul begins in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1 through 3, we've read it and we'll read it again. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, that's extreme, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing." Paul is taking these gifts, and he names five of them, spiritual gifts, that he'd been discussing and speaking about relevant to his times. But he says they are all useless, without love, doomed to proper traction, won't to full expression, without love. His assessment is this, spiritual gifts, no matter how genuine and exciting and wonderful and compelling they are, are completely useless and even terribly destructive if they are not ministered in love. Without love, speaking well, or as would have been the gift of the time in different languages, is just making noise and you're only entertaining yourself. You can have great insights and you can have wonderful passion, but if you lack love, then what you're announcing is only information that doesn't have any positive or practical effect. Without love, great faith, is nothing. Do you know what? Faith can become so self-absorbed. It can merely become a tool that you're using to try and prize what you want. It can even become an item when you start to have faith in your faith and lose sight of where the object of faith properly is without love, being ultra generous with a charity collecting boxes rattled in front of your face and thinking, hold on, I'll give you not just a fiver but a tenner and all that I have in a wad here, just empty the contents out. You can do that, even going to the level of giving your life in martyrdom, but without love, that is an empty expression. Japanese kamikaze pilots have done that Islamic terrorists have done that. And they do it because they hope foolishly to gain honor among men. But there is no love in these acts. Each is completely empty without love. The only way our service for God is going to be effective and blessed by Him is if the people of God are motivated by love, Warren Wearsby says, ministry without love cheapens both the minister and those who are touched by it, but ministry with love enriches the whole church. Isn't that important? You've heard the story perhaps of a congregation who called a new pastor. The people had been complaining, because every week they were hearing from the former pastor. He was telling them, you're sinners, and if you don't repent, you're going to end up in hell. He was being faithful, but he didn't last long. The new pastor came. The people apparently loved him. And when they asked what your new pastor is preaching, a member of the congregation says, he tells us that we are sinners and headed for hell unless we repent. And they're puzzled, and they're thinking, well, it's not what the first Philip was saying. Sure, there's no difference in the message here. Why do you like the second pastor when he's saying the same thing as the first? When the first pastor told us we were headed for hell, they said, it seemed like he was happy about it. When the new pastor says it, we can tell it's breaking his heart. And that's a challenge for us, is it not? It is good to be faithful in our witness but it's not good to be caustic in the middle of that faithfulness. We need compassion. And throughout the Bible, we are commanded to love. Some examples that we have here, in First Thessalonians 4 and verse 9, we are taught of God to love one another. In First John 4 and verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. In Romans 5 and verse 6, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost that is given unto us, our Lord. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, he says, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And our Lord is saying, let your love, your interaction with people in society all around you, with your family and your friends, let it be a mirror image of the love of God in Christ. Let that love flow. And our Lord gave that instruction in John 13 as a command. Now, another love is something that's not just bouncing about in the middle of our emotions, but it's actually housed and anchored in our will. Gary Thomas has written an excellent book on marriage called Sacred Marriage, and he writes these words, one of the cruelest and most self-condemning remarks I've ever heard is the one that men often use when they leave their wives for another woman and they say, the truth is, I've never loved you. He said, that's meant to be an attack on the wife, saying, in effect, the truth is, I've never found you lovable. But put in a Christian context, it's a confession of the man's total failure to be a Christian. If he haven't, hasn't loved his wife, it's not his wife's fault, but his. Jesus calls us to love even the unlovable, even our enemies. So, a man who says, I've never loved you is a man who's saying essentially this, I've never acted as a Christian. Being a true follower of Jesus Christ means we must learn to love others. The kind of love the Bible's talking about here is a decision. It's a mindset. It's a way by which we must look at the world and at others. And I'm asking, have we lost our duty on this very point? Tennessee Williams tells a story about somebody who forgot. It's a story of Jacob Brodsky. A shy Russian Jew whose father owned a bookstore. The father wanted a son to go to college. But the boy, on the other hand, only wanted one thing, to marry Lila, his childhood sweetheart. A French girl she was who was as effusive and vital and bubbly and ambitious as he was contemplative and retiring. A couple of months after young Brodsky went to college, his father fell ill and died. So the son took his opportunity, came home, buried his father, married the love of his life. Then the couple moved into the apartment of a bookstore and Brodsky took over the management of his formerly father's bookstore. And those times with the books really suited him perfectly, but it cramped her. She wanted more adventure, and she found it, she thought, whenever an agent who praised her beautiful singing voice turned up and enticed her, come along and tour Europe. You'll become a famous star with a vaudeville company. Brodsky was devastated. As they parted, he reached into his pocket, and he handed her the key to the front door of the bookstore, and he said, you'd better keep this. "'because you'll want it someday. "'Your love is not so much less than mine "'that you can walk away from it. "'You will come back sometime, "'and I will be waiting.' "'She kissed him and left. "'To escape the pain that he felt, "'Brodsky withdrew deeply into the bookstore, "'took to reading in a way "'that some people take to other things.' He spoke very little, did very little. Could most times be found at the large desk near the back of the shop, and he was immersed in those books while he waited for his love to return. Nearly 15 years after they parted at Christmas time, she did come back. But when Brodsky rose from the reading desk that had been his place of escape for all of those fifteen years he just saw an ordinary customer. Didn't recognise her. Do you want a book? he asked her. And the fact that he didn't recognise her stunned her. But she took possession of her feelings and she replied I want a book but I've forgotten the name of it. And then she told him the story of childhood sweethearts that were in the book that she was looking for purportedly. A story, she said, of a newly married couple who lived in an apartment above a bookstore, A story of a young and ambitious wife who had left to seek a career, who enjoyed splendid success, but who could never let go of the key that her husband gave her when they parted. She told him the story that she thought would just jolt his memory. She's looking at his face and it's showing no recognition at all. Gradually she realized that he had lost touch with his heart's desire. That he didn't any longer know the purpose behind his waiting, behind his grieving. That now all he remembered was waiting and grieving itself. You remember it. "'You must remember it, the story of Lila and Jacob.' And after a long, bewildered pause, he said, "'There's something familiar about that story. "'I think I've read it somewhere. "'It comes to me that it's something by Tolstoy.' And she dropped the key and ran out the door of that shop. And Brodsky returned to his desk back to his reading, unaware that the love that he had waited for had come and gone. Tennessee Williams' 1931 story, Something by Tolstoy, reminds us it's easy to miss love when it comes. Either we're full of distractions or we're so completely lost and caught up in who we are or what we're doing that we can't recognize Where the desire of our heart should be focused. And let me apply that to our service for God. Let me put it like this Show me a church where there is love. And I will show you a church where there is power in the community. Now, we are beginning to see that again. And it's lovely to witness. But we need to see more and more of this. And I said at the beginning that in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a love to find, and it's the love of Christ. And is not that love... Evidence when he comes to Jerusalem, looks over that city, a city of refusal and rejection. And we're told in Luke 19 and 1 that he beheld the city and he wept over it. He shed tears because of their unbelief and their belligerence and their murderous heart. We have as well our Lord Jesus and the people have him in their sights as he stands at Lazarus' grave. And as they note, Behold how he loved him, John eleven thirty six. Over the whole expanse of his own people, we are told that this love is not just a fleeting passion, doesn't come in today, go out tomorrow. But he loved them, John thirteen and one. He loved them unto the end, and that's the love you and I need to show for the city of. Belfast, read Belfast instead of Jerusalem for the people of God all around us in this congregation and in others for individuals like Lazarus. Let's challenge us, our own hearts, to show it more and more. In Chicago, many years ago, a little boy attended a Sunday school. And when his parents moved to another part of the city, the same little guy, traveled back to the same Sunday school. It meant a long, tiresome walk every day. And friends were asking, why did you come to a Sunday school? It's a lot closer to your house, more local to you. You wouldn't have to go on this long and tiresome walk that you do every Sabbath day. Why are you going so far? Look, there are plenty of other Sunday schools. We know we go to some of them close to your house. The young fellow said, They may be as good for others, but they're not for me. Why not? Because they love a fellow over there. That's why he went. That's what kept him going. That's why he kept returning. That young boy was D.L. Moody. When Moody matured into the evangelist, he became the soloist at his great evangelistic campaigns would have been Ira Sankey. Sankey wrote the hymn, his banner over us is love, or sword, the word of God. We tread the road, the saints above, with shouts of triumph trod. By faith they, like a whirlwind's breath, swept on o'er every field. The faith by which they conquered death is still our shining shield to him that overcomes the foe, white raiment shall be given before the angels he shall know his name confessed in heaven then onward from the hills of light our hearts with love aflame will vanquish all the hosts of night in Jesus conquering name. Do your neighbors know that you love them? Does your family know that you love them? Does the world believe that we love it? Do you know what? Here's the challenge. If the world believed that we loved them, there would be fewer empty churches and a smaller proportion of our population who have never darkened a church door. Let love travel with our duty in our relations and the world will be more readily evangelized though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries though I have faith that could remove mountains and have not charity I am nothing learning to love